From the start of our nation's history, France, and Paris in particular, has played an important and unique role. It's long been a refuge and a place of inspiration for American statesmen, inventors, and artists. And what they learned from the French in Paris has then sailed with them back to the United States, injecting art, culture, and innovation into our American society. David McCullough explores and celebrates how influential Americans traveled to Paris back in the 19th century and then came home to make history here in the United States. And that's all in his best-selling book, The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris. David joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves. And David McCullough, thanks for being here. Well, it's my great pleasure. Thank you. So, David, your book talks about Americans who journeyed to Paris between 1830 and 1900. What's the premise of your book, and, and why this, this time? Because these young Americans were going to improve themselves in their, in their ambitions to do something of value in their profession. And there, wasn't the, there was no opportunity for the kind of education that they knew was essential. Painters knew that there was no school of art in this country. Architects knew that there was no school of architecture in the United States of America. Medical students knew that medical training in this country was way behind that in Europe. And in France, they could get the greatest medical training in the world. Uh, George Healy, one of the, the great classic portrait painters of the 19th century who did Abraham Lincoln's portrait and many others, he knew that if he stayed in the United States and just went struggling along as a painter, he'd never be very good. The same was true with Samuel F.B. Morse, who invented the telegraph, but he was an artist who went to Europe really to perfect himself as a painter. And it was while he was in France that he got the idea for the telegraph. And the medical students who went over came back to transform medicine in this country from what they had learned in the School of Medicine in Paris. You know, the Atlantic Ocean was much bigger back then, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. In the late 1830s, the steam transportation was not very much as yet. They went over by sailing ship, most of them. Then they went by the hundreds. One of the most brilliant examples of it is the uh, great sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens, who, in my view, is one of the most interesting characters I've ever written about. Admirable in the extreme, a street kid, out of the streets, literally the streets of New York, who had no opportunity to speak of until he got to France and got admitted to the École de Beaux-Arts as the first American student in sculpture ever. If you think of an American who would be a smart kid from a good family in a great American cultural center, by the time they got to Europe, there was just nothing like it. I mean, these guys no. were like bumpkins. And keep in mind, they, they did not speak French because Romance languages were not yet taught in our colleges and universities, with few exceptions. They might have had Greek or Latin in college if they went to college, but they didn't know how to speak French. Imagine being thrown into a hospital training school where you can't understand the language of the man giving the lectures, and you're in with hundreds of other students who are way ahead of you, and you're trying desperately to keep up, and yet they did it. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who's one of my favorites in the book, who was a great essayist and wrote Autocrat at the Breakfast Table, among other things. And he would come home to devote his life to teaching anatomy at Harvard for 30-some years. And when it came time for him to retire from Harvard, some 35 or 40 years later, and he had to give his farewell speech, he talked about the professor he'd had at the École de Médecine in Paris. 
what a breath of fresh air and sort of a, a declaration of freedom to be able to come from America where you couldn't dissect bodies, no. you, you couldn't look at a woman's body no, as a doctor, no. and to go over there and to find out, hey, there's a whole new dimension of, of ability Cadaver, to study. Cadavers were illegal. And because they were illegal, they were only available on the black market. And because they were only available on the black market, they were extremely expensive. So the, the doctors got to work with a cadaver, but students never did. So you'd have people graduating from medical school, supposedly surgeons, who'd never cut open a body in their life, doing it to a live person, and very often with little or no anesthetic. And then in your book, The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris, you talk about Elizabeth Blackwell. First female doctor. What a beautiful thing for women to have. Oh, she was marvelous. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely marvelous. And courageous. These are all courageous so, people. So, well, and how was most it? of them had no money. How was it that Elizabeth Blackwell, I mean, it's such a fascinating part of the book. She went over there and was actually able to come home and, and really bring the whole world yes, of indeed. gynecology yes. to the United States. And she, she went for the same reason the men went, yeah. because she knew that education here was insufficient. And we, we, of course, were trying desperately, and these young people all knew it, to catch up. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Uh, historian David McCullough reminds us that not all American pioneers went west, and that's what he talks about in his 2011 bestseller, The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris. In it, he tells the story of important Americans whose lives were influenced by living in Paris between 1830 and 1900, and then how they came home and influenced America. One of the exciting things about, about your book, The Greater Journey, is the arduous trip that was involved in just getting there, crossing the Atlantic yes. and then getting to Paris. Talk about that a bit. Well, they, they came across very slowly and often uh, not very pleasantly, and they would land at Le Havre. So everybody really would basically land in Le Havre and then yes. head straight into yes. Paris. Yes, and there was no train up to Paris. They would go by wagons or giant stagecoaches, they look like. Right they would almost always stop at Rouen. And they would see the great cathedral of Rouen. And it just took their breath away. Now, consider, they'd never seen anything that high, that big, in a work of architecture in their lives. The tallest structure here in the United States was probably Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Not much at all. So we're talking these Gothic cathedrals soaring to the heavens, made out of stone. And they'd never seen anything even remotely so old. It just took their breath away. And several of them, including James Fenimore Cooper, said if the trip across, with all its agonies, had amounted only to seeing that cathedral, it would have been worth it. And then, that was just Rouen, which is sort of a yeah. secondary side trip today for most people. Right. When they got to Paris, then it, was just it must have just... Well, Paris was, what, four times the size of New York City? I would think of that at least. And, of course, it was like it always has been. It was jumping. It was life full of action. Public spaces, arts, yes. uh, performing arts. Fantastic food. Fine wine. Yes, and museums, and just walking the walk and climbing to the tops of the hills and going into the great cathedrals. All complemented by a sense of fashion oh, and style that yes, didn't exist yes, in yes. the States. One of my favorite stories of all is that Augustus St. Gaudens, the brilliant sculptor, I think he was our greatest sculptor, suffered from depression, very serious depression. And he went into one of these lapses, and he came in one day to the studio and, by implication, let it be known that he was going to go destroy himself. And he went down, he was on the left bank, and he went down to the river. It was early in the morning, and went out on Pont des Arts, 
and he was all ready to jump off the bridge into the river. And he looked at Paris in that early morning light, looked at the view of the river, the Seine, and the architecture on both sides, and he said to himself, I don't want to die. I want to live. Wow. And he turned around and went back up to his studio whistling. And 150 years later, that's the bridge that's almost falling apart now because so many lovers go there and yeah, lock their padlocks They're on taking it. them off now. They're taking them, thank goodness. Because the weight was too great. Yeah. <laughs> but that's when you go to Paris so yeah. many times, you just think, you, you step up from the view or the table, and you just say, life is good. But the res- restoration of the, of the life force, the life desire, yeah. by just being in that spot. And it wasn't as though he'd never seen it before. But he'd never seen it in that light at that moment, at that time in his life. It saved his life. You know, we've got a lot of travelers listening, David. And uh, when you think about the joy we have in Paris today, talk a little bit about some of the sites. I understand from your book that the Louvre was open on Sunday for locals, but every day for foreigners? Yes. Why? They just want people who were visiting to get the full dose in uh, the little time they had there. And you had the Seine River boats and can-can oh, yes. dancers and, and boulevards. Oh, exactly. And just the pleasure of strolling, of seeing. That when you think about Paris, there are no great mountain ranges like you have here uh, in the it's northwest. Culture. There was no, no seaside view. There's a river, but it isn't a particularly distinctive river. Right. What you have is what human beings have built. What you have is architecture and open spaces. When Wilbur Wright got there, and he was looking at how they laid out their spaces, and he said that every important public building has open space in front of it so you can enjoy it. Why haven't we done that in New York? Why don't we do that in our city? He's learning just as those people in the 19th century learned by the very experience of being in Paris. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David McCullough about his book, The Greater Journey, Story of Americans in Paris. Important Americans, young, ambitious Americans who intentionally left probably pretty good lives in, in the United States to go to Paris, an arduous journey, learn, pick up the culture, refine their skills, and come home and make our country better. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Barbara's calling in from Chicago. Barbara, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. Um, I'd like to know, in your opinion, what has been America's greatest contribution to France in terms of culture? What a good question. Our writers and painters and our appreciation of how much we have learned from the French and how we have gone to battle, gone to war two times Mm -hmm. to be of help, to save them, to save that way of life. More Americans are buried in France than any other place in the world except our own country. Think of that. Some of our most sacred national shrines are in France, Normandy, for example. And also we know what it's meant to people that we love who've been there. Gershwin, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, on and on. There's hardly a writer that of merit or importance that hasn't been to Paris. And if they haven't, they better get over there quick and soak it up. It's a wonderful two-way road, I think, between America and yes. Paris. Barbara, thanks for your call. Thank you. You know, David, uh, sort of relating to Barbara's call, but in the other direction, we've talked about all these impressive people, young, ambitious people. When you sort of sum up what they learned and then what they brought back to America, what 
do you think Americans should recognize uh, from France? How have we benefited from France? Because there's a lot of people inclined to be threatened by, you know, French social sensibilities yes. and so on, and they quick to put down the French. But I do think our countries have a very deep and powerful bond and a lot of gratitude directed in both directions. What can we be thankful for to the French today in our culture? How did these men and women you're talking about, what did they bring home and, and how did they change America? Well, first of all, we should be thankful for them because we have our country. Without the French help in the Revolutionary War, we almost certainly would not have won the Revolutionary War. It wasn't just that they sent Lafayette and others over to be on our side to give military support, but they, they provided money. We couldn't have done it without them. Right. And we should never forget it. We, we more than doubled the size of our country with the Louisiana Purchase. There you go. Never forget that. But we should also be grateful to them for the way they welcomed these talented young Americans, the way they, they were proud to serve as part of their education, to bring them farther forward in their aspirations to achieve something of value. History is about more than politics and war. History is about art and music, and architecture, and medicine, and science, and music, all that the human mind and the human spirit can achieve in, in so many forms. And often it's more important than the politics and the war. Gershwin, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Mark Twain, you name it, they are in many ways far more important than most generals and politicians of our past. And they're enduring. They're part of our life. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David McCullum about the greater journey, Americans in Paris. David, we've been talking about statesmen, artists, doctors, brilliant people. There's also a lot of entertainers that just went over there. Um, Buffalo Bill, Tom Thumb. Absolutely, uh, yep. Kind of like an American stage yes. show. Yes, It's kind of a complicated mix. You've got high thinking and low thinking, basically. How did the French respond to these uh, Americans that came over? Were they seen as bumpkins or, or, or what? Well, they saw us as, a, as good showmen. And, of course, some of them were very important. The uh, black musicians who went over in the 20s and 30s, the jazz musicians and the uh, symphony, serious classical music players and the composers. Cole Porter spent a good part of his life in France and in Paris. And, of course, he wrote some songs about all of that that endure forever. I Love Paris by Cole Porter is one of, the, one of the best things he ever wrote. And the love of art for the sake that art enlarges the experience of being alive. These people that you write about in your book, they seem pretty serious. Did they get caught up in, in, the, in the fun dimension of Paris? Oh, certainly. When they had time. Mm -hmm. The medical students were desperately hanging by their fingertips trying to keep up. Right. And most of them had no money. Yeah, from a practical point of view, how do you go over there with yeah, you have no, traveler's checks? No. What do you do? Well, I wonder how George Healy ever survived. Somehow he did. Yeah, so they um, were really the living month to month? They, didn't, yeah, they and, didn't bring a treasure chest with oh, them? Oh, no, heavens no. Um, mm -hmm. And, well, they're living the left bank life of mm -hmm. artists, which they loved. This must have been so much fun for you to write this book. Uh, to a certain degree, was, was taking on this project uh, just a great excuse to go to Paris? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes and no, because most of the research was all here. It's the letters they wrote home. Okay. The diaries they oh, brought that's right. home. Yeah. Really was. My wife and I have been going to Paris since the 1960s, and we adore it, and we never tire of walking the streets and always learn something new. But I went back to, to walk the walk of, of all of these people. I went to where 
the St. Gaudens studio was. I went to where the medical students worked and studied, all of that. But that's part of the joy of the, of the job. I sometimes think I take on some of these projects so I can get to go to these places. I would imagine. So what's, what's a, one of the great, one of the simple joys that you, you and your wife would enjoy next time you go to Paris? Well, it may sound like this is an advancing age, but it really isn't. We just love to go and sit in the park. Yeah. And watch the people, watch the children. It's a quintessential French thing to do. Absolutely. And it brings back strong reminders of how much value there is in just calming yourself in a beautiful setting and soaking it up. And David McCullough, if you were in that park and you saw an American reading your book, The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris, how would you hope that that book impacts that person? I would hope that that person would want to get the most out of their time there and they'd come back just as soon as possible. Come back to Paris as yes. soon as possible. Yes. Develop an appetite. For... And bring their children. Yeah. Bring their friends. Share the wealth. Share the joy. Viva la difference. And I want to thank you, Rick, for what you do. I think your work is extremely important. You've brought joy and interest to so many of us. I'm one of your big fans. And my dear friend, keep it up. Thank you. I think we're both uh, lucky and, and, and blessed to have found a niche where we can do what we love. Absolutely. It gives us energy. The joy is in the work, isn't it? It is, and yep. it connects our good readers and viewers with a beautiful yep. world. David McCullough, thank you so much, and uh, best wishes in all your thank future you. projects. Thank you very much. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.